0: Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Winshittle, who is the author of a new book, Teaching Climate Change, Fostering Understanding, Resilience, and a Commitment to Justice. Mark is a professor of science education at the University of Washington in Seattle. I'm really excited to have this conversation. It's a great book. We'll include information about it in the show notes. Mark, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. It's great to be on your show and great to have a chance to speak to an interested audience.
0: Absolutely. We talk about trends and this is something that is continuing to elevate in the collective consciousness. It's a really interesting book from a teaching perspective. How do you teach climate change? We always like to begin by getting to know our guests. Can you catch us up on how you got to this point in your professional life?
1: Yeah, so I benefited from having two different careers, both of which really helped inform the writing of this book. I was a secondary school teacher in the Midwest for a good many years, working with kids of all grade levels, particularly middle school. And then I got my advanced degrees and I came out here to the University of Washington in Seattle, and I've been a researcher and writer now for about 27 years have been here oh wow and i i can tell you that i've used what i've learned in both careers to do a lot of my writing because mm-hmm. writing a book like this about teaching climate change if i was just using my researcher perspective i right. might overlook what kinds of demands we're placing on teachers who i did that work for many years and i know what it's like when somebody says. We have to change our practice and we can do it alone or we can do it together. And here's the reasons why, and Mm -hmm. it's complicated. Teaching is, I consider teachers to be public intellectuals and I consider them to be miracle workers for what they do with kids in the class. And we're just hoping that teachers can step forward with all of our support to begin to teach if they're not yet teach about climate change.
0: Yeah, and that's the other dimension. You and your professional life, on one side, but then the other side is this rising awareness of climate change and what's happening with our climate. And then thinking about that as an academic, as an educator who's doing research into how can we teach more effectively and how do we address some of these foundational problems. Can you weave in a little more mm. of the climate crisis aspect of what's really activating you in writing
1: the book? Well, I think. We know a lot about good teaching and what it should look like in classrooms. But this topic of climate change is huge. And in fact, the word climate change is a little bit of a narrow look through the keyhole of reality because teaching about climate change does not mean just teaching about, let's say the greenhouse effect. And then you ask your earth science teacher in your high school to address this for a couple hours, you know, out of a whole school year. And then the faculty says, okay, we got that covered. Fewer and fewer teachers are thinking that that is the road to responsible teaching about climate change. Mm -hmm. climate change is about every natural system on earth, geophysical systems that affect the weather. The oceans, the cryosphere, which are the Arctic regions and glaciers. And of course, also, it intimately involves ecosystems, all life on Earth. Yeah. That is one of the reasons why entire science departments at the secondary level were elementary teachers. It can be taught in any branch of science. And so the door is open for everybody to contribute to this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it referenced around math where, you know, there are places where you can apply mathematical thinking, you know, mathematize all sorts of things and how, you know, getting people to think about how math cuts across all dimensions. Same thing for critical thinking, but the renewed focus on problem solving, understanding complex systems and trying to solve complex problems in many ways, I I think that really is encapsulated by climate change and some of the climate problems that we're going to have to solve. There's been this theme of problem formulation. That's been something that's been bubbling up for people a lot. Humans are going to have to increasingly get good at getting focused on what's the problem space that we're trying to solve for. How do you think about that? How can you help us wrap our our arms around the problem space that we're talking about?
1: Well, I can give you an example of how teachers might think of a problem space for their kids to investigate. You know, all these different kind of compartments that we use to put knowledge in, like knowledge of the oceans, knowledge of extreme weather, knowledge of ecosystems, those are kind of artificial separations. So a teacher in a classroom, if they're going to address an authentic problem that kids will feel is compelling, and let's pick urban heat islands as an example, that teacher is going to have to, with kids, better done with kids and the teacher doing it her or himself, With kids, you frame what the problem is with urban heat islands. You know, you've got all these asphalt paved surfaces. You've got all these buildings that all collect heat and re-radiate it at night. And often in urban areas all over the country, really all over the country, the the temperatures are like 10 or 15 degrees Fahrenheit warmer in these urban heat islands Mm. than they are in other places that have more green spaces around town. So what is the actual problem we're trying to solve? On one layer, there's the kids understanding the science of infrared being absorbed and how does it get irradiated and what might we do with green spaces to cool it off, to adapt to climate change. Hmm. But there's a whole nother explanation involved and the problem space has two layers. The second layer is historical injustices. Hmm. Who lives in those urban areas, in those heat island areas, they're often our brothers and sisters of color, who have been situated in a lot of the most undesirable places in our urban settings through disinvestment in communities and all kinds of other reasons. And so, the reason that urban heat islands exist has a scientific explanation, and it has a historical, environmental justice explanation. And so, teachers need to feel comfortable going back in time and finding out what really happened in the early 20th century, for example, in all these areas from Richmond to Seattle to Brooklyn, it's super widespread. And if you're doing that kind of authentic work, it's a real problem. Then you're bringing in ideas from different areas. Like you're bringing in the greenhouse effect. You are bringing in weather extremes. You're even bringing in ecological living systems because you're talking about green spaces and how they cool the area down. So you're breaking down disciplinary barriers by teaching something that's, as I said, authentic and authentic problems always cut across separate sub-disciplines.
0: Yeah, but it's at a time when classrooms are increasingly polarized depending on where you are and where there are certain conversations that folks try to avoid and there are certain places where there is pushback around teaching some of these dimensions, including questions around, you know, how do you teach social justice? How do you also engage in an audience where kids might have been raised with different understandings of the truth? You address that in the book. I'd love for you to share a little bit of your thinking around that because you do come at some of these questions pretty
1: head on. So I think that pushback, from community members, perhaps parents, maybe even school board members, that pushback is not quite as robust as many teachers are worried about. Of course, it certainly depends where you are in the country because I speak to teachers around the country regularly and there are teachers in some states, I won't mention the names, but they do feel pressure from the fossil fuel industry to address just the facts about the climate, not even to get too deep into it mm-hmm. and to avoid references to the impact of the petrochemical industry on the environment in right. general, but that's not common across the United States. Parents by and large, I think there's evidence that parents do want their children to understand climate change and kids for sure. Want to understand climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, kids have phones and those phones are like having a shadow curriculum. Every time you pull that phone out, you know, if you're connected to certain social media outlets or streaming, you're going to get news about the climate. And right. it's often negative. There's right. not very much news about solutions. And kids are worried, but they also would be worried if they go through a K, 12 experience and their teachers never talk about anything related to climate change, that kids know better. They know what's going on. Mm. And so they need to be told. And the teachers we know who have addressed climate change, they say that a lot of children just outright thank them saying in effect, we are so glad that we are talking about this and we have space to discuss this that's aside from learning all the science and stuff, which are also grateful for, but just the opportunity to talk is Mm -hmm. important to kids.
0: Yeah. Well, I was struck by the notes about the importance of self-care and even connection to the anxiety that all of us, but in particular, rising generations are facing where they're thinking about their future. They're encountering stuff. You know, I have a four-year-old son who was really shook in New York when it was dark and then a little bit orange in the middle of the day in June, you know, due to the Canadian wildfires. And as a parent, that was tricky. But looking at the longer game, I realized we're going to have to be having conversations with our kids about this for the foreseeable future. And to your point, if we're not equipped with ways to talk, to them, they're going to have a conversation on their own. Can you talk about how you frame this for teachers, how you help them sort of step into this role? Because if, as I understand it, you know, there's not one way in which climate change is being taught across schools in K-12. Can you shape up for us how it's taught and then maybe some ideas for educators out there and how to teach it well?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of questions in there. One is, how is it taught early? So the research that we have about how it's taught suggests that it's a patchwork. Generally, it's not coordinated. You know, the information that kids get and the conversations they have from within a grade level or from grade to grade as they go up the ladder is not coherent, and that's problematic. And the the average teacher who does address climate change-related issues, of which there are literally thousands,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. they spend a median of one to two hours per year. So the average student hears one to two hours per year about climate change. And this counts, even if the teacher just mentions climate change, Mm -hmm. much less deep dives into inquiry, the kind that I was just referencing with urban heat islands, for example. Yeah. So I'm not criticizing teachers. We're talking about the entire system has to shift. There have to be tremendous amounts of, and different kinds of support given to teachers, the most precious commodity for teachers is to get time to spend planning and planning together to develop like full blown units, not just one to two hours, but how can I teach three to four weeks of connected lessons on some climate change topic? And I'm working with a couple of teachers in LA who have just developed an entire year course, year-long course, on climate change. And they told me a funny story the other day. They said, you know, school just started for them. And one of their colleagues has a daughter who is in their class. And this daughter is experiencing these conversations about climate change. And so their colleague hugged them in the hallway saying, you would not believe how important this class is to my daughter. Hmm. That's just a personal anecdote, but I think that's reflected in a lot of schools where students feel that they really like that the teachers are just trying to talk about climate change. Even yeah. if they're doing an awkward or kind of marginally planned job of it, still the students respect that and they appreciate that. And it's
0: surprising. Those numbers are much lower than I would have thought. You know, So there are certainly opportunities to integrate more of this into a school year and hopefully there are ways in which we can do that it does also speak to motivating folks to take action figuring out how to actually activate and do so in a way that is you know thoughtful about your own well-being and self-care you do speak to some of the generational stuff in a pretty deep way i think in the book reflecting on how to empathize with the rising generations and also in some ways see some problem-solving control to them to say, ultimately, mm-hmm. we're going to need to partner with you, but also learn from you to, Absolutely. to solve some of these problems. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah. You know, when you were talking a few minutes ago about the conversation you were having with your own child, that to me struck a chord. There's a name for that now. It's called the intergenerational learning around sustainability and the climate. And what that means is that people of different ages, often within a family or an extended family, begin to talk and educate and challenge the ideas of one another. And often it's from the younger member of the family to mm. the older member of the family. Mm. And this has had a, a quite a substantial impact on a lot of families. There's a good research base that says that we need to encourage more talk within families and this is such a great way for schools to extend the curriculum into the family environment Mm -hmm. and give parents you know more of a role in teaming with the teacher in effect to help develop everybody's ideas about even their own about climate change Mm -hmm. you also mentioned earlier about anxiety and i just want to pick up on that this is something one of many things that teachers say wow i was never trained to talk to my kids about Climate anxiety.
2: Yeah.
1: So there's climate anxiety that kids have. It's real. It's a set of emotions and it's forward looking. They are worried about the future. Mm -hmm. There's also eco grief, which is more of a backwards looking emotion in which you are feeling sorrowful or in despair about what has already happened to the environment, what losses we've had. I see. Yeah. And so it's more prevalent than adults think because kids can often have it and never talk to their parents, never talk to their teachers about it. You can imagine if you only talk for one to two hours a year about climate change in your schools, you'll get no chance to hear from your kids about their emotional state, yeah, and so I think it's underestimated in that regard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're starting to learn a little bit about how to deal with kids' emotions in the classroom, and what researchers are saying is. We should be aiming not to work on the anxiety, but work on how students cope with that anxiety. It turns out that the coping is more important than the existence of the anxiety. Hmm. And some kids learn to cope by thinking about positive things in addition to worrying about the negative things. And this can only happen if they learn about it in classrooms or online. But there are solutions. There are regenerative solutions and solutions around community resilience and personal resilience and Mm -hmm. ecosystem resilience, there's a lot of good news out there and people who cope productively, kids who cope productively can go back and forth between recognizing the problem, but also recognizing that there are solutions. And these these people who are productive in their coping also have trust in adults around them. Mm -hmm. Teachers are quite trusted messengers in their minds and And that helps also to temporarily relieve that anxiety.
2: Hmm.
0: That's interesting, yeah, it does remind me also of the rising trend around student agency and trying mm-hmm. to provide them with the opportunity to kind of lead in a lot of what you put out there. It does really lay the foundation to start thinking about the future. Futures thinking mm-hmm. is another thing we talk about a lot on the show, but then flipping the model in some respect, where ultimately. Let the students come up with their own models. Let them do some exploration and and kind of model for them how we might start formulating meaningful solutions.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right about kids taking lead around the country and around the world. We got to keep remembering this is not a U.S. problem. Kids across the world are taking actions. You look online; there's a gazillion groups of children and communities who started their own organizations. And you probably have heard of the lawsuit in Montana. That was led by children mm-hmm. who were arguing to a judge that fossil fuel emissions were compromising their generation's ability to have a clean and productive future. And the right. judge sided with them. Mm-hmm. So, this is kids really taking it outside of school and showing some agency. They yeah. had help with this, but they were showing agency.
0: Well, and also tying environmental rights to civil rights is, I think, a really interesting trend. Also, if you start thinking about climate refugees, which is another entire space to to get into, but the level to which people are going to be displaced by climate problems if you are looking long-term, there's a lot of challenges on the horizon. We made it this far, Mark, without talking about AI, but there I did it again. You know, the other theme that shows up a lot on this podcast is the transformative wave of artificial intelligence that we're still kind of in the midst of trying to think about how that might relate to education, but then also how that might relate to either contributing to or potentially solving or helping with sustainability. I'd love to get some of your thinking about how this other wave that's kind of out there, how does that relate to your thinking and to some of the themes that you're talking about in the book?
1: This kind of goes back to your original question about how do we frame climate change as a problem? The success that we have as a species in holding on to this planet and not destroying it is not going to be the result of technological innovation. It's going to be a social transformation because we currently, even without AI, right now we have enough technology to make huge changes and draw down the amount of carbon dioxide very rapidly. We just do not have the social dynamics and the leadership in most parts of the world where we need it in order for this to happen. Mm. Now, that being said, I would say artificial intelligence has a role to play in solutions. If you look on the website drawdown.org, that is an organization, Drawdown, that has cataloged hundreds of solutions from creating new kinds of forest lands, to redoing how we create cement, which unbelievably, it contributes a lot to greenhouse gases. Hmm. They have a huge diversity of solutions that teachers and kids may never have thought of before. Hmm. But I think when you get into engineering, I think AI probably could help with things as basic as how do we optimize how much energy we get out of a field of wind turbines mm-hmm. where should we put them onshore or offshore photovoltaic cells and solar farms could all be optimized i keep using that word but i think that's what ai is good for yeah i i think that's where its role is it could even help us figure out how to reduce food waste mm-hmm. if you take a look at the top 10 opportunities that we have to bring down gigatons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The top, in the top four, believe it or not, are a plant-based diet and reducing food waste. Mm -hmm. These are things that AI could help with, but I also wanna make a point that it's the solutions that we should be getting involved in activism around are not about electrifying our vehicles, it's around more mundane and everyday things that are part of our social existence, and that we need to take action on. It's really. Now did I sidestep your AI question? No, I that? thought that was great.
0: That was great. That was interesting. In particular, to me, it, it made me think about the interaction between the human and the AI. Where, in some ways, getting back to that idea of problem formation, and mm. perhaps like persuasion and shared experience with other humans the ai is not going to replace that so the humans are going to be the ones who are serving up some of the problems and then some of these new technologies hopefully you know i try to be optimistic about how emerging technology may be able to help solve some of the climate crises because the the converse is you know it's, it's much more dire. And that's a question, you know, just in general, how do you stay inspired and how do you think about keeping people motivated, keeping people's spirits up? Because it is difficult when you are talking about some existential challenges that are out there nowadays.
1: Well, I think, first of all, solutions, talking about solutions and focusing on those is huge in the school and in society. It's so easy to do doom scrolling and, you know, catastrophic conversations on TV. But there are also ways to make solutions core to every experience that kids have in school. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I'd recommend for teachers. If you're going to design a unit of instruction that tackles some authentic problems, focus it on the solution and that's where your unit is going. You're learning enough science to keep working on a solution Mm -hmm. and maybe that solution is regenerating part of the natural world. Maybe it's a solution about resilience, adapting, but that's what it should be focused on. The other thing that gets me personally inspired is I wrote about three classrooms in the book, a third grade classroom, a seventh grade classroom, and a nine, 10 grade classroom in three different places. And the third graders are so inspiring. You would not believe what third graders can do with data. The Mm. teacher, focused on deforestation in the Amazon, which is a complicated problem. It's got to do with land use. It's got to do with the meat-based diets. It's got to do with politics. But these third graders were not only analyzing all kinds of data and making sense of it because they got the opportunity from the teachers to make sense of the data. They were asking for additional kinds of data because the problem became authentic to them Mm. and that's where agency comes in. They take charge of their own learning. And that third grade class, as I watched them over a period of of weeks, they become more and more independent of the teacher. At the end of the school year, they do not need all kinds of prompts and support from the teacher that were given to them in September. They grow and grow and grow. But those kids were so inspiring. And at the same time, I walked out of that school every time thinking, okay, these kids are eight years old. They're going to be in their mid eighties by the year 2100, they will be around at the turn of the next century as will your child, Michael. Right. And it just reinforced to me every time I walked across that parking lot thinking, I'm so glad they're doing that work. I'm so glad those teachers were addressing it with those kids. And this has got to be the start of something bigger and more widespread.
0: I'm talking to Dr. Mark Winchettel, the author of Teaching Climate Change, Fostering Understanding, Resilience, and a Commitment to Justice. I have it here right in front of me for those who are viewing at home. Mark, if folks want to learn more about the book or, or anything that we talked about today, where should they go?
1: Well, I developed a companion website to the book because I thought, you know, as soon as the ink got dry in that last draft, I thought climate change is just constantly changing what we know about it. So I thought a companion website would be super helpful. It's got a simple name. It's climatechangeeducator.org with dashes in between. And so you can take a look on there for all kinds of resources. And I've grouped them by what's in each chapter in the book. I said, go right here to this link if you want to learn more about the disinformation chapter. Yeah. More good stuff is there. And so i recommend that for anybody who's getting the book or even if you don't buy the book, it is a website that's super useful for people even without the book.
0: And we'll include links to all of this in the show notes for the episode. Mark, as we're wrapping up here, it's been wonderful having you on. I always like to give guests some opportunities for a summation, takeaways, final thoughts for our listeners as you wrap up for us today.
1: Oh, thank you, Michael. It was a joy to be on with you. I guess uh, the last thing I would say is that we all have to work together because the scale of the challenges we face requires that we get together at scale and we do things as groups, as communities, and that includes educators. You know, 50 million children in our public schools, and so our educators have such a responsibility, but also an opportunity to change how many, many young children think about their relationship with the environment and with sustainability.
0: Amazing stuff. The name of the book, Teaching Climate Change, Dr. Mark Winchettel. Thanks again, Mark, for joining me on today's show. Thank you, Michael. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, write us a review, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.